0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is
1: Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Frank Kendall's officially headed back to the Pentagon tonight. The Senate confirmed him to be Air Force Secretary by voice vote Monday. Defense News reports his undersecretary, Gina Ortiz-Jones, took her office officially on Monday, too. Clinical workers at the Department of Veterans Affairs have eight weeks to get COVID vaccines if they haven't already. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough says he's mandating the shot so veterans can be confident about their safety when they come to VA facilities. FCW reports the agency hasn't said what consequences employees will face if they don't get vaccines in time. The Department of Health and Human Services has a new Chief Information Officer, Beth Niblock, will come to the agency after serving as CIO of the City of Detroit. Federal News Network reports she replaced David Chow as CIO at HHS earlier this month. The House Armed Services Committee is working on its version of the National Defense Authorization Act. The Senate Armed Services Committee did its bill last week, mostly behind closed doors. The final bill's pay raise provision will impact more than just uniform personnel. Jessica Clement is a Staff Vice President of Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Jesse, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What came out in the Senate's bill? What do you expect the House to look at at the National Defense Authorization Act? And if I'm a civilian at a civilian agency, why do I care?
2: Good. Very good question. And thanks again for having me, Francis. So like you noted, Senate Armed Services Committee markups were closed. They have historically been closed over the last um, several years in the I think it was 42-page summary of the FY22 NDAA. It noted a 2.7% pay raise for military personnel that matches what Biden had in his budget. And Biden had proposed, I should say, in his budget.
1: What does that mean for civilian personnel in DOD, if anything? What does it mean for civilian personnel at other agencies, Jesse? How, how closely does that track what goes in the NDAA every year?
2: Uh, Quite frankly, it means nothing. If you look at the text of that summary, SASC will say this assumes the 2.7% pay raise for federal employees at DOD. But the NDAA does not authorize that. It's assuming that that is what appropriations will do. And that's just for DOD employees. What federal employees should care about and the raise that they're going to get is what Um, Both chambers are doing as it relates to appropriations, most notably the financial services and general government appropriations bill, which is part of the seven bill appropriations package that's going to be on the House floor this week. Debate started today. Um, That bill is silent as it relates to the federal employee pay raise. And I'd be happy to explain what that means for federal employees if we have the time.
1: Well, we have the time. That's what you're here for, Jesse. So please go ahead.
2: I'd be happy to. So when appropriations is silent, which has been the case on and off a lot in the last decade, um, a three-year pay freeze started in 2011, and prior to 2011, the federal employee pay raise was almost always in this appropriations bill, and for the most part, it was at parity with the military pay raise. Then we had that pay freeze from 2011 to 2013, and things got a little wonky. Sometimes it was inappropriate, sometimes it wasn't. So when the pay raise is not explicit in the financial services and general government appropriations bill, action on the pay raise defers to the president. So I'm sure you saw the headlines the last few weeks, federal employees slated to receive 2.7% pay raise next year. That is not a given. It is not in that appropriations bill. The next step if that 2.7% were to become a reality is President Biden needs to send a memorandum to the Hill by the end of August outlining his intentions for the pay raise. Of course, anything can change between now and September 1st. Do I think it will? Probably not. But that 2.7% pay raise isn't a given until Biden sends that memo.
1: So I understand all of that and I appreciate the explanation. What I, the, the silver lining, if there is even a cloud, is that 2.7 seems to be the floor and not the ceiling. There's a lot of t- times in the past number of years we've been discussing these issues, Jesse, where the number that was being floated seemed to be a ceiling. It seems like this is the reverse. Is that a fair read on my part?
2: I think anything is possible, right? That's why I would prefer it if this, if the 2.7% was explicit in this appropriations bill, then we wouldn't have to guess what's going to happen. I think given that the 2.7% tracks with what happened in the private sector over the previous 12 months, as well as what is most likely going to happen for the military in the Those two things being reality, at this point in time, I would say that 2.7 is probably the ceiling and not the floor. I think it's going to be an unlikely day where federal employees get a larger pay raise than military personnel. And that 2.7, while certainly nowhere near final as it relates to congressional action, I think is pretty much a done deal at this point uh for military personnel
1: all right you mentioned the house uh, appropriations package is coming to the floor this week what do we know about where the senate package stands and what's there
2: oh if only i had an answer for that i'm not even sure folks in the senate do right now um there has been no action on approves in the senate at this point in time to um talk about that at least last i had checked if i had to take a guess i would say um, the federal employee pay raise in the fsgg bill would be silent again um there's one other thing that i think would be of interest to your viewers if you don't mind as it relates to the pay raise um there is no information on what locality pay is going to look like um this is an average 2.7 percent if this was a normal year it would have been 2.2 across the board and half a percent Half a percent reserved for locality pay you know, some people get more some people get less as it relates to locality pay the average being 2.7 the president's budget was not explicit as to what he intends to do with locality pay which i think is telling um and it is unlikely we will have answers to that until closer to the to the end of the year
1: um 30 seconds left jesse could that have to do with the fact that opm hasn't really figured out what it thinks it should do about locality pay, given the likelihood of the explosion in remote work among the federal workforce?
2: Well, it's a question I most certainly have asked Um, and I did not get a satisfying answer to that. I think that is a perfectly reasonable conclusion to draw as we discuss the future of work countrywide, not just with the federal workforce, But if your station is in D.C. and you have permanent remote work, um, say, somewhere in the Midwest, should you still be receiving the D.C. locality pay, I have no doubt that is a conversation that is most likely taking place within the administration.
1: Jessica, thanks very much as always, my friend. It's great to see you.
2: You too. Thanks, Francis.
1: Coming next, a minimum wage boost for federal contractors. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what $5 more an hour really changes and for who. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Federal contractors are prepping for an increase in the contractor minimum wage to $15 an hour. That's almost a 50% increase from the last time the White House set the rate. Eric Crucius is senior counsel at Holland and Knight. Eric, welcome. It's good to see you again. The issue that I guess I'm always interested in when it comes to the minimum wage is how many contractor jobs really get the minimum wage and how will this influence not just the people who make that, but the people a step or two or three above them? Do we even know that, Eric? Welcome.
3: Uh, thanks, and thanks for having me, of course. Um, DOL, the Department of Labor, tries to quantify that kind of in the rulemaking and talk about how many employees are going to be impacted. They have it at uh, 300,000 or 400,000 employees that would be impacted directly by this minimum wage because it's not just workers who are working on government contracts who are usually paid a little bit better than their non-government contract counterparts for supporting contracts. But it's these this category of workers kind of working, quote unquote, in connection with a contract. And those are folks who might do billing for a contract. They may work on time records, maybe a security guard in, in a construction site or something like that. These are folks who are not called directly to do things on a statement of work, but are are necessary for the performance of the contract. And the Department of Labor has specifically included those folks, like they did the last go around, but they've specifically included those folks in this $15 minimum wage. But I think another point you bring up that's really interesting is there's a lot of folks who are making $15, 15, $15.50, $16. Once all these other folks are are moved up to $15 an hour, are those other uh, employees or workers going to be moved up the pay scale as well And will that kind of have a rolling effect all the way up the pay scale?
1: It's interesting, too, that this is happening at the same time that in the private sector, even for uh, mid-level and higher-level workers, white-collar workers as well as blue, uh, companies are saying, we're seeing the mass resignation. We're seeing the churn in the workforce much greater than it's been in years. Any feedback that you're hearing from your clients or, or other contractors about the the impact that they believe this might have on their workforces and their ability to perform their contracts and find the people they need to do the jobs.
3: I mean, I think this could actually be helpful if administered the right way, because uh, contractors have always had trouble keeping on employees. And if these contractors are kind of able to pass this cost on to the government, which is the idea, the $15 minimum wage, instead of being borne out by the contractors that we've passed on to the government now, then it might help the contractors kind of retain those employees that they are seeking to retain, that are very difficult to find right now. I think everywhere we go, we see help wanted signs, and that's not an accident. It's because the market's really tight right now, and contractors are in a tough position, particularly service contractors who are working on very thin margins, to three percent oftentimes. They can't afford to give their workers a raise and still, you know, make money on a contract. So now that the government's kind of going to kind of put that put that bill with a price adjustment, perhaps it'll be easier to kind of hold on to these employees and, uh, and and prevent them from going somewhere else.
1: What do I do if I'm running a company that's like the one that you just described and I'm dealing with this? It's not as simple, I'm sure, as going through your payroll software and just booting everybody up that's making less than 15 to 15.
3: Right, and that's, you hit the nail on the head because it's really, you have to look at your, con- I always say, look to your contract is the clause and the clause the final clause isn't out yet from the far council but is that clause for far based contracts in your contract and if it isn't then you don't have you shouldn't pay the 15 dollars minimum wage because you're not going to get that price adjustment then from the federal government when that time comes and that's consistent with what DOL said in the past you wait till the clause is in your contract and of course that creates complications because if the contracting agency is supposed to put that clause in your contract and fails to do so they could come in and require the retroactive payment of those back wages, and then you have to go back after the fact and get that those back wages from the agency in the form of a price adjustment. But, of course, at that period of time, the contractor is then floating that difference in cash, so the contractor has to have access to cash in order
1: to kind of cover that difference until the agency acts. And I imagine one challenge you might be up against in that situation is if it turns out that you aren't going to get the price adjustment and it turns out you didn't have to pay the increase anyway – your employees might not discern that and might not be too happy that they're not getting the increase. Right,
3: and that's, that's a very consistent problem that you have with Davis-Bacon Act for Construction and Service Contract Act for Services contracts, where employees see kind of new wage determinations coming out, new h rates coming out by the Department of Labor, but the fact of the matter is that the contractors are really powerless to do anything until the contracting agency inserts it into their contract, which is usually the next renewal or some, you know, significant modification, um, and sometimes the agency just doesn't do it at that time too because they forget, or there's an agency policy, or whatever it is, um, and contractors are off, you know, answering the phone from unhappy workers wondering why they didn't get the raise they're supposed to get, and I, I understand there's, you know, for both sides of that it's a difficult situation, but the key is communication, where the contractor communicates this new role to the employees and and tells them. We're going to give you this raise as soon as we can, and that's as soon as it's in our contract, the contract that you're working on or, connect, or in connection with.
1: Eric, in the addition of Government Matters that plays in my head, there's a magic word on every show. The bird comes down like the old Groucho Marx show, and on this show, it would be Davis Bacon, and you would have gotten the magic word. Thanks very much for coming <laughs> on. It's great to see you, my friend. My pleasure as always. Up next, the missing piece of the puzzle to countering homegrown violent extremism. Straight ahead on Government Matters. Better data to stop violent attacks before they happen. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. The Department of Homeland Security is warning its law enforcement partners about two anniversaries in August that could generate violent extremist attacks. It's part of DHS's strategy to deal with homegrown violent extremism. Triana McNeils, director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Triana, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You write in this work, since 2010, DHS has developed strategic initiatives that target HVE. And you write, uh, DHS's strategy contains some but not all of the key elements of a comprehensive strategy. And you, re- and you write there are seven of those. Where is DHS succeeding and where is it not having as much success in a strategy for dealing with HVE?
4: Sure, so DHS, their strategy has three components. Number one, the framework, which outlines their vision for what they're trying to achieve as they counter terrorism. And the second component is uh, the public action plan, what they are going to be telling the public to help hold them accountable for specific steps they plan to take and by when. And then the third is an internal implementation plan, and that's really the how-to guide for the staff at DHS. Um, And DHS is doing a very good job in terms of having a clear mission, goals, and objectives for how it's going to counter this violent extremism. But where it's falling short is specific performance measures for example you want to know how far you can go with certain activities before you invest too much money and it's not really moving the needle and so that's something that we would want dhs to incorporate into their strategy we want to know the progress that's being made so if they need to redirect resources to something that's working better they can and the other thing that we were looking for that they didn't have is the resource investments. How much money, how many staff, what types of skill sets do you need to implement this strategy? So those are the things we were looking for.
1: A couple of things there I want to pull on but another thread that you write in this work is strategy didn't include a discussion of external factors such as how the economy demographics or emerging technologies may affect the department in meeting its goals that's kind of an overview of the landscape of what might be coming at us and the components of what might be coming at us that's pretty important it sounds like uh, to me Triana
4: it's critical for example these are live documents this strategy and so when the pandemic happened that we are we are still in, how is the pandemic affecting your achievements for these goals? Uh, how are you redirecting resources away from your planned activities to address some of these other issues related to the pandemic, as well as social media? Uh, we know violent extremists are using social media to coordinate their efforts and to plan. And how are you incorporating these advances in that type of technology as well into your strategy. So those are things that they need to stay on top of for sure.
1: The underpinning of all of this, it sounds to me, Triana, is data. And you write in this work, DHS has taken some steps to establish a data governance framework. DHS has already identified some data challenges. What's going well for them with that framework? You identified that as, as item number one of what mm-hmm. they're doing well mm-hmm. in. Uh, and what are the data challenges that DHS is having?
4: Sure. Well... They have established a data governance council. And that's important because that's the body that's going to tell DHS how to manage and use its data resources. Uh, it's established a strategy to make sure that that information is used as fully as possible and is shared agency wide. All very important steps. They also have committed to uh, investing in s- developing the skill set of their staff so their staff can fully leverage that data. That is all very good. However, they're in the early stages of incorporating targeted violence and terrorism prevention data into this governance framework. We're happy to see that they are making the commitment to incorporate this information into their broader agency-wide data governance framework, but they need to fully incorporate that. They also uh, don't have a good handle on all of the data assets available to them when it relates to targeted violence. Uh, For example, they don't have one comprehensive database that tracks threats of uh, violent extremism. These are things that we would hope that they would have, especially at this point.
1: Um, You mentioned uh, you write in the recommendations here. uh, One of them is to incorporate its targeted violence and terrorism prevention mission into its departmental governance of data is the incorporations uh, are the incorporation steps that you just mentioned and the establishment of that council steps in the right direction toward fulfilling the recommendations that you're making. Triana.
4: They are they're excellent steps and we're going to continue to track their progress. And they have committed to us uh, and agreed with our recommendations that that's something that they need to do and something that they will be doing. So we will continue to monitor that.
1: Another recommendation I note in your work is that DHS revise its strategy to include all key elements of a comprehensive strategy. You mentioned three of them at the beginning of this conversation. Does that mean they still have four others to go to fulfill the list of GAOs written in the past?
4: They do, and they're making some progress on two of those four. For example, um, they have outlined um, different uh, interim goals that they want to achieve, and I think that that's very smart because that's how you can track the interim progress. But again, they need performance measures. Uh, They need to identify the resources that they need to, to fully implement the strategy. That's critical, right? Um, and then of course, the external factors that we discuss things like the pandemic, things like technological advances that violent extremists can take advantage of. Those are the things that they need to fully incorporate in their strategy.
1: Triana McNeil, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program.
4: Thank you for inviting me.
1: You can find a link to her work at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget if you miss an episode of the show, that's on our website too. You get a preview and a recap of every show. When you sign up for our daily newsletters, you just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. North America's largest maritime exposition and conference is back in person. The Navy League Sea Airspace 2021 is next Monday through Wednesday at Gaylord National Harbor. You'll see speakers from the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Maritime Administration, and Congress. You can learn more and register at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.
0: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. Offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, "Here's what I want. Here's what I want to, Here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years."
1: Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, If you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball?
0: Well, I think I think the idea here is to if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure. You're asking the right questions of industry. That you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s- stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are and and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like the the to to some extent, I'm 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 advocating for timeline be damned. You ought to.